unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. And unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen, they stay awake in vain. And all of us only have so much energy, so much time. And so when we engage it, we don't want it to be in vain. We want it to matter. We want it to make a difference. We want our hearts and lives to make a difference. And so there's a partnership with the Lord, with God's presence in our lives, the fragrance that we talked about last week. And so we're going to continue looking at God's presence by specifically talking about a few things in the same story that we started last week. And so last week we looked at three rebuilding stories that we see in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. These are old covenant or old agreement or testament books. So we looked at the story of Zerubbabel who rebuilds the temple in Jerusalem. And Ezra, whose story we're going to key in on today, he rebuilds people's understandings of Torah, understanding of God's covenant, understanding of what God is asking of people, which is really an understanding of who God is and who they are and how that relationship is to work. And Nehemiah, he restores the walls of the city of Jerusalem that were in ruins. But in all three stories, There's a frustration in all of the leaders because God's presence was missing. And God's presence being missing is never because God isn't kind. It is always because he is being loving. It is just his heart towards us. And there's a reason why. And so we want to look at another reason today. And so let's today look at two critical pieces. But like a puzzle, they need to be put in the right place. And so we're going to celebrate a step that we see in the Old Testament, and we're going to learn from a misstep today, which is what, that's what we're going to do. So in Nehemiah chapter 8, we see Ezra reading Torah, reading Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, going through it over all of the people. And as a result of the reading of God's word, as a result of God's word being read over them, they have a sudden realization. Remember, they've been in Babylonian captivity for 50 years. All right. They have just come out of captivity, but it doesn't mean that all of Babylon and every, all the other gods of that culture aren't in their own customs, their own way of lives, all of those things. And so as the Torah is read over them, they have a sudden realization, oh my goodness, this is who God is. And as a result of knowing who God is, they begin to see where they aren't. They begin to see we're sinful, we're unrighteous, we have acted unrighteously towards God, we've acted in unrighteous ways towards other, other groups of people. All of this is revealed. A great question I want you to reflect on, because in Canada right now we've got a lot of changing beliefs. A question I'd love for you to reflect on those, are your beliefs being transformed as you read and as you're under God's word, or are they being transformed as you read and are under the spirit of culture? Which one is pushing on your life, causing more of your beliefs to be transformed. Now, God can use both, but it's a good thing to identify what is happening. Because in this story, as Ezra preaches God's word and teaches God's word, all of a sudden they have a realization. And it says this, on Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 2. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. So that from the earth is just put upon them. It was an outward example of what was going on inside of their hearts. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and they confessed their sins and the iniquity, iniquities excuse me, of their fathers. So we can see here that, again, if they're under God's word, they have a realization, ah, 
This is who God is. This is who we are. And they take a beautiful step. And here's our first puzzle piece. They take a beautiful step of repentance. Repentance is simply this. I am walking in this direction. And as a result of seeing who God is, seeing who I am, I now turn from unrighteousness. I turn from this. I change my mind. And I begin to move in an opposite direction. Even as Jason was sharing a moment ago, that we move in an opposite opposite spirit. This is part of repentance. And we see this step. So again, as I read through it, they begin to fast using sackcloth and ashes. This is a step of repentance. The Israelites separate themselves from all foreigners as this act of saying, God, we are your covenant people. I'll explain that in just a moment. It's important. So they begin to separate themselves. Lord, we are, we are not better than, but we are different than because of who you are. And they begin then to confess their sins, which is the act, action of repentance, the iniquities of their fathers. Specifically, they're being repent, repenting from syncretism which is the mixing of worship, not just the mixing of cultures. Because when we get to the book of Revelation at the very end, it says every nation, tribe, kindred, and tongue. God has no issue with that. God is beautiful in terms of who he is, but the diversity of all of humanity worshiping God together. This is God's heart on earth as it is in heaven. This is his heart. But you see here that syncretism is not just engaging with different cultures. It is when the idols and the gods of those cultures supplant who God is. When those things begin to happen in their own hearts. And then rather than being people under Torah, they are people under Torah plus this, plus this, plus this. And all of these things seemingly are no big deal and they can work together. But truthfully, if you're honest and you really assess what they are, they are actually actually they are so diametrically different that they don't work together. Now in their context it's Babylon, it's Ashdod, it's Ammon and it's Moab. And so what Yahweh makes known through the Torah, they realize, ah, now today in 2021, when we talk about Babylon and Ashdod and Ammon and Moab, that may have no context. So let me just bring it into our world for a moment. Because every single one of us, we have what God's word says in context, not out of context, but what God's word says. But we also live in a pluralistic society that has lots of different beliefs and customs and ways in which you and I talk about life and, you know, progress and everything like that. So we can see it. So we, too, experience in 2021 this thing called syncretism. Let me just give you an example of what it can look like. A Christian today can define themselves in this way. I'm not saying it's right or true, but they can. A Christian can today, because I hear it often can define themselves, we want the grace of Jesus, but we want the self-definition of secularism. We want the power of a certain political ideology. We want, especially when it comes to enemies, we love the idea in Hindi and Buddhism of karma, especially get them, smite them, almighty smiter. And we love the impersonal genie of a universe where we get to manifest or call out into it and it can give us whatever we want. And all of this we call Christian. Yet the problem with it is most of the things that I said, with exception to the grace of Jesus, are actually opposite to what you read in scriptures. I am glad that I see in scriptures sowing and reaping. And everyone said... But I am also glad 
that I see in scriptures that God can absolutely set me free from some of the junk that I've sown. Not necessarily the consequences of it, but the weight of it. Aren't you glad that you don't have to bear the full consequences for your sin? That Jesus took them upon himself? If you study Buddhism, you know what you'll discover? There is no mechanism for redemption within Buddhism. And so again, this syncretism is problematic when you and I begin to sync up all these different things. But this was happens today and it was happening then as well. And so again, we see them fasting. We see the people of Israel, you know, engaging holiness. So they are being separate from as they hear the Torah, separate from synchronism. And then they begin to confess. They confess both individual, that is my sins, the things that I have done that are not just wrong, but they are in rebellion against God. They are in opposition against King Jesus. They are not moving in the way of his kingdom. They are moving in another kingdom. This is what sin is. It, it's missing the mark. It's behavior that's crooked. It's when I begin to trespass or you trespass against me or I trespass against you. So the Bible talks about individual sin, things that we confess that we bring to the light. But we also see here that the scriptures are not just written just for you in your own little bubble. They're an us thing. And so we see this collective, this reality that they have, they express the collective sin of the nation and of their fathers or of their lineage. They begin to look back. And this is good. And we in 2021 should learn all these years later. We should learn from their example. We should. This is an important step that they take of right of repentance. They have the right peace sitting under God's word. They realize who God is and who they are. And rather than being obstinate or stiff-necked, as we're going to read in a moment, they repent. And this is a good puzzle piece, and they put it in the right place, and it's something that we should learn from. As Canadians today, we hold tension of both our rights and our responsibilities. Yet as Christ followers, citizens perhaps of Canada, yes, but citizens of a different kingdom, we are not merely responsible for rights and responsibilities. We have other pieces that we must steward, and they are repentance and righteousness. Someone who doesn't know Jesus doesn't stewarding often those things, but we are. We are stewarding repentance and righteousness. And so tomorrow, as Canadians, we go to the polls. Some of you have already gone to the polls. You've done it early. Some of you may have mailed them in. Life Center isn't partisan. But by nature, when we talk about things that matter to every Canadian, they can sound political. Because we're talking about hearts. But we're not partisan. And so this is what we're going to do as a church. We're going to pause and we're going to pray. And we're going to learn from the word of God. And we're going to follow in the footsteps of those that we see here. And we're going to take a moment and we're going to repent. Because whether we are liberal, conservative, People's Party of Canada, Green, if you're from Quebec, whether it's Bloc or NDP, I hope I didn't forget any parties. But wherever it is, here's what I would say about Canada. None of us and none of them are righteous. They are all human systems. And so each and every one of us, no matter how we vote, need God to do what God alone can do. 
But I do encourage you to exercise your democratic right and vote. It's a freedom and a gift. But together, let's pray. Father, when we think of Canada from its very first peoples until where we are today, Father, there's much that is good. There's much that we are grateful for and grateful of. But Father, when we look at the history of Canada, we also see sin and injustice. We see it both on an individual level and then iniquity that gets into systems on a larger level. And so Father, as Canadians, we ask for you to forgive us for where we have fallen short where our behavior is collectively crooked, where we have transgressed one another. Father, we recognize that we don't transgress each other before we first transgress you. And so, Father, we pray, God, for our nation to be glorious and free. It not only is a political thing, it is a heart thing. And we confess, Lord, that there is none of us that are righteous. But we also know that there is one who is worthy and it is Jesus alone. And until you rule and reign on our hearts, God, until you do, Father, we continue to see the mess that we see and we admit, God, we're a mess. We need your help. And so Holy Spirit, come and magnify the person and the teachings, and the way of Jesus to every Canadian we pray, no matter how they vote. In your name we pray, in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. So Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 4 to 5, we see something powerful. Everybody repents. And it sounds like this. It says, but they and our fathers, they acted presumptuously. Now, this is the language of confession. This is what it sounds like. And it says that they stiffened their necks and they did not obey your commandments. They were stiff-necked. They were offended. Your neck gets all stiff. They refused to obey and they were not mindful. This is a beautiful, beautiful little nugget, little tidbit in scripture. It just says not only did they, you know, they're stiff in their necks and they were disobedient. It also said, or refused to obey. It simply says they stopped being mindful of the wonders that you were performing in their midst. I wonder for us, some, some of us, especially if you've been following Jesus for a little bit of time, have we lost a little bit of wonder every single day that we wake up, that there's mercy that is fresh available to us? Do we just take that for granted? Or do we have a little bit of wide-eyed wonder of who God is and what God makes available? So again, they were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their necks and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But then they say things that are really, really specific, and it shows that they have been paying attention to Torah. It says, but you are a God ready to forgive. You are gracious and you're merciful. You are slow to anger and you are abounding in steadfast love and you did not forsake them. Now again, stiff-necked really just means that they were prideful, that they were haughty, they lacked mindfulness and they were being stubborn. Anybody here, can that apply to anybody here sometimes in your life? Can I see your hands, please, online? Could you please raise a hand if you've ever been stiff-necked? Oh, I have many times. Here's a stiff neck posture that we can have in 2021. I don't want to be in a church with those people. Like tomorrow, if they vote that, I don't want to be in a church with them. 
That's a prideful posture. As Jesus would say, a come to the light posture is this. I can't believe that Jesus desires to build his church with someone like me. That's a posture that is entirely different. Can you believe for a moment that Jesus chooses to build his church with us? Do you know us? Have you seen us? Have you seen what we're capable? Are you, are you, are you okay? Are you breathing? Are you, like, I know your mask's on, but your eyes can blink. I can see them blinking. Have you seen what we are capable of? And yet God still gives us this commissioning, this gift of this sharing the gospel, the message of the gospel, the life of the kingdom. So again, I don't want to be in a church with those people. It's a different posture than, I can't believe that Jesus wants to build his church with someone like me. Not from a self-defeated place, but just from a humble place, humble posture. Jesus says this in John chapter 3, 20 to 21. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and doesn't come to the light. At least their work should be exposed. But everyone who does what is true comes to the light. So it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out on God. And this is what we see in Nehemiah's story, the story of Ezra. As he teaches Torah, they begin to again realize who God is, who they are, and they begin to come to the light. And they begin to confess the sins of their own lives, but also the sins of their fathers. And we should learn from it. We just took a moment and prayed together. This is a puzzle piece of repentance. It's beautiful. You should learn from the story. But now they're going to take another piece called righteousness, and they make a misstep, and we should learn from it, not replicate it. Okay? Because when it comes to righteousness, as is often the case, they reverse it. There's a great clip, if you ever want to go on YouTube, the individual speaking, his name is Alistair Begg. He has a Scottish accent. If you ever just go into YouTube and type Alistair Begg, and then just YouTube it. It's one of the first clips that comes up. He'll talk about that any time you and I are talking about righteousness and we begin with I statements, it is always self-righteousness. Okay? I am a Christian because I read the Bible, because I pray, because I go to church, uh, because I give 10% of my income, because I forgive those. I, I, I. No, 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 no. You are a Christian because of what Jesus has exclusively done for me and for you. And then from what Christ does in obedience, we begin to walk it out. But none of those things make us righteous. Only Jesus makes us righteous. So what Jesus does for us, then we begin to walk it out. And this here we begin to see in the story. So they reverse righteousness. Reversing righteousness is measured by looking at others and not looking at who God is. And again, as Ezra is preaching the Torah, as I've said over and over again, the people have an awakening once again of who God is, who they are, and then between who God is and who they are, there's a gap. And how we fill that gap, repentance is a powerful step, but if we think our behavior, our intellect, our righteousness is going to fill the gap, we're going to be solely mistaken. But this is what we see in the story. This is exactly what they do. See, in their hands, they have two pieces, repentance and righteousness. Nehemiah 9, verse 17, I'm going to read it again. 
But you are our God, ready to forgive. You're gracious and you're merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And you did not forsake them. These elements that the Lord is merciful, that he's slow to anger, that he's abounding in steadfast love. This is not wishful thinking on their part. Like a child who has got in trouble tries to butter up their parents so the punishment will be less severe. Remember what I'm talking about when you're a kid and you got caught doing something? Mom, I just want to thank you. Dad, I want to thank you that you're so loving. You, you, you're so gracious. You only want to bless my life. I thank you. You just begin to go into overdrive. Only my kids? Only me? No, no, we all did this. Oftentimes, that's wishful thinking. That's like I'm trying to butter you up here so that, the, you know, the, again, the consequences are less severe. That is not what is happening here. They are not, this isn't wishful thinking. Everything that they just said, they learned in Torah. Exodus chapter 34, verse 6 to 7. This is who Yahweh, this is who God says he is. It says the Lord is, this is how God reveals himself to Moses. The Lord is compassionate and a gracious God. He is slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth. Maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations. Forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. This is how God reveals himself. This is who God is. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished. So he's also just. Bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. That's a beautiful, beautiful scripture. That it's not when you look at injustice that God doesn't care. God never condones sin. He atones for it. He doesn't just overlook it because that would make him unrighteous, unholy. He never does that, but he provides a way of atonement. And the way of atonement, again, is never we bridge the gap. It is always God bridges the gap. So in the old covenant, the old story that we're reading today, you can really see is here's what happens in Nehemiah chapter 10. They repent and we should learn from it. But to become righteous... They make a covenant. Covenant is just an agreement with God. And here's what it says. It says, The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands uh, to the law of God, the wives, the sons, the daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding. So that's a, basically a way of saying everyone is involved in this. They join with their brothers, their nobles, and they enter into a curse and an oath. And here's what they say. The people, this is the people now. They've repented, slate's clean. Now they begin to look to God, and here's what they do. They try to make a covenant with God. Not God with them, they with God, okay? And here's what they say. Essentially, we will observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. In other words, from this place of repentance, God, we want to make a covenant with you. We are going to do everything that your word says. Now, how many of you know that's a beautiful heart, but they're not going to do that? Just like when you and I, you know, sometimes in our own personal prayer lives, we have a moment of repentance and then we follow it up with God. Like, I'm going to show you that I really mean business this time. If you just give me one more chance, I'm going to prove to you that I really care, that I'm really committed. And all this language begins to come out. Here's the reality is it may be beautiful language and it may make us feel better, but it doesn't make us an inch more righteous. Here's Why? I encourage you when you go home, if you can read Nehemiah chapter 10, the details, the covenant that they want to make with God, they are spectacular. It's really good stuff. In fact, if anyone can keep that, we'll, keep them. we'll take them as members of Life Center. It's really, really good stuff. It's really good stuff. 
But there's a really big difference, though, between what the people here in Ezra, in the book, in Nehemiah, sorry, it's a big difference between what they are doing and what God does. There's a big difference between this and every other covenant we see in the Bible. This agreement is initiated by the people. It's not initiated from God. And why does this matter? God makes covenants out of his essence, out of his being. He is perfect. He is holy. He is complete. He is unchanging. Therefore, he is trustworthy. When God makes a covenant, when God says, I am a covenant-keeping God, God is faithful. And so out of that space, he can make a covenant. Why? Because his essence and his character and his nature is faithfulness. When we make covenants, ooh, we make covenants not out of our being. We make covenants out of our desire. God makes covenants out of who he is. We make covenants out of who we desire to be. And this is dramatically different. Because all other religion in the world is making an agreement of who we want to be to earn ourselves something, whether that is enlightenment or access to heaven or whatever it is. But all of it is self-righteousness and it falls short because none of us is perfect. None of us is holy. None of us are complete and we are not unchanging. We all need to change by a show of hands, whether it's here or at home. How many of you need something in your life to change? Can I see your hands? I'll put my feet up with you. I'm all in. I am like all in. There is never a moment. There is never a time. There is never an occasion where anything in who God is needs to change. And so when he makes a covenant with us, whether it was with Noah, whether it was with David, whether it was Abraham, God can make a covenant with us because it rests in who he is. We make a covenant out of who we desire to be. And this is what we see in the story. And it's a misstep. It's the right piece, but it's in the wrong place. Christianity, don't don't misunderstand it. Christianity takes full effort. It's work. It's work. It's work to confess. It's work to come to church, to read your Bible, to pray. Takes full effort, full effort. But it is never a path of earning And don't mix those two things up. I love Luke chapter 15 because it says, like lost sheep. When we've wandered, all we have to do is surrender and be carried home. I love the story that Jesus tells of the lost sheep that Jesus doesn't, or the shepherd doesn't find the sheep and then shame the sheep and make the sheep walk home. It's not what the story says. It simply says that the Shepherd comes and picks up the lost sheep and puts it on his shoulders. It is why salvation is never bestowed upon our hearts without the first gift of surrender. Christianity is synonymous with humility because it is first and foremost admitting we can't do it by ourselves. We are constantly unfaithful. Luke chapter 15, the same one, tells the story about a coin That whether it is found or lost, it never loses its value. And isn't that a beautiful, beautiful thing to every single person on the planet? How many of you know that every single person breathing on planet Earth today has infinite value and worth to God? They may be lost, but they have not lost their value. Every one of us is created in the image and likeness of God. Every single one of us also are stained by sin. But every one of us have value to God. And all this coin has to do is wait to be found by the owner of the house. 
And the final story, of course, that he tells in Luke chapter 15, which we're going to teach through again in a few weeks' time, is like a lost son. He is undeservedly welcomed back into the family by the affection and the love of his father. And he finds himself once again sitting at his father's table, not because he's earned anything, sheerly due to the graciousness of his dad. And so God, in this story, just like last week, he doesn't respond to their agreement that wants to go this way. He doesn't, his, his, his not responding isn't a lack of love. It's actually a profound expression of his love. God doesn't respond to their covenant, and here's why. Because through his son, he had a new one in mind. He didn't just have a better one, he had a new one. In your Bible, you have an old and a new covenant agreement. Hebrews says it this way. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. See, the Old Testament, the Old Agreement, is a covenant with ethnically Jewish people and how they would know and relate to God. And the New Agreement and the New Testament, the New Covenant, is God fulfilled through ethnically Jewish Jesus. But it's not only, it includes, yes, God's covenant people. But we as Gentiles are then grafted in because of the graciousness of God. It doesn't ignore, it fulfills everything God's heart and intent. So this is why we see in this story all of our effort, as Pastor Lori comes, all of our effort, and can you bring up both of our communions? I think I love both. All of our effort in and of ourselves, we can take the step towards righteousness, but the only step that we have towards, sorry, we can take the step of repentance but the only step that we can take in terms of righteousness is to receive what Jesus has done for us, not what we can prove to God. Because <laughs> all we prove to God, in, in fact, he doesn't need any more proof. He knows us from the beginning to the end. Yet God is gracious and compassionate. He's slow to anger, and he's abounding in steadfast love. But he's also righteous which means that he doesn't overlook sin. He atones for sin. And so right in this moment, you are either standing in the atoning work of Christ or you are standing in trying to make atonement for your sin. And it will never 